The reading today is from Genesis 16. Hagar and Ishmael. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Thank you, Jenny. That's nice. Nice to see you. My name's Matt. I'm one of the um, pastors at the church. Uh, Great that you've joined us this morning. Uh, interesting passage, that one, wasn't it? Uh, a little bit of stuff going on, um, which we'll get to. Uh, let me start with a question, though. Uh, how do you feel about the idea of trusting God? How do you feel about the idea of trusting God? Uh, we are, as, as we've seen, we're in this uh, book at the moment called Genesis. Uh, it's the very first book of the Bible. Uh, and as we've seen from some of the characters in our, in our reading, we're uh, in part of Genesis at the moment that's to do with this character, Abraham. Uh, or Abram, as he's still called uh, this part of the story. Uh, although actually what we've seen, if you've been with us uh, during the series as we're looking at this part of the Bible, is that uh, the story that we're in, it's not so much about Abraham as it is about God. It's a story about God's plan to bring blessing to a broken world, God's plan to uh, bring blessing through Abraham. And as we're reading about Abraham and, uh, and his family, we're seeing uh, different characters trying to trust in uh, God's plan, and we've uh, been learning about what it means to trust God. How do you feel about the idea of trusting God and uh, and the idea of trusting God's plan to put things right? I um, I think trusting God is actually kind of an interesting idea in some ways. Um, 
if you're a Christian, it, it's probably something that's quite fundamental to you. Trusting God is probably one good way of de- defining what it is to be a Christian. Uh, and in some ways, it's a very simple thing to trust God. But uh, it's also a very challenging thing, I think, at times. And I also think the idea of trusting God plays out in lots of real practical situations. Uh, there are lots of times when we might go, ah, oh, I kind of, I want to do this thing, whatever it is, but uh, I know it's not God's way to live, and so I, I have a decision about whether I want to trust that God's way is the right way to live uh, or, or whether we do things our own way. Uh, trust, it, it, it takes a lot of trust, say, to um, do what a lot of Christians do and say we're going to take a portion of our income and we're not going to spend that on a nicer car or a nicer holiday. We're going to uh, invest that money in God's plan to make this world right. It takes trust uh, to make that sort of decision to make that sort of sacrifice. Uh, another example, I was talking to someone through the week about uh, another person who had been having a really hard time lately, uh, and the question came up, what, why does God seem to give these people such a hard run? Like, Why, why do some people just go through struggle after struggle after struggle? Uh, and those are tough questions, and there are things we could say, but ultimately it takes trust to be okay and actually believe that God still knows what he's doing. How do you feel about the idea of trusting God. Uh, now, as I said, we're in this part of the Bible and we're learning about what it looks like to trust God. Uh, and we're following these characters, people like Abraham and Sarah, uh, and they're struggling along. They're trying to trust God's plan, and, and at points they kind of do an okay job. Uh, but some of the time, particularly today, they, they're really more examples of what not to do, right? Like of failing to trust in God's promises. And uh, that's especially true in today's story. There's some pretty gross stuff in today's story, can I say? Sarah uh, finds another woman and invites her into a marriage, uh, abuses a slave. Abraham, who's apparently a hero of the faith, uh, gets a girlfriend on the side, shirks responsibility, uh, both of them struggling to trust God. And then there's Hagar herself, uh, who's treated horribly, uh, the victim of the story. And even actually Hagar has some big decisions about whether or not she's going to trust God. Uh, and so what I want us to do today, uh, uh, pretty simple, we're going to keep it, keep it nice and simple, we're going to just have a think about the story together. Uh, there are four characters in the story, uh, so we're just going to talk about each of those four characters one by one. Uh, each one of these characters, I think, tells us uh, something slightly different about what it looks like to trust God. Each one of the characters tells us something slightly different about what it looks like to trust God. Uh, and actually, although it's hard to see at first, I think underneath all, all four of the characters in the whole story... Uh, I think there is a message of hope that we can trust God. And in fact, I think the passage shows us that even when we fail to trust God, he is still trustworthy. So even when we we don't trust him, uh, even when we fail, uh, we can still trust him, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, So four characters. Who are the four characters in our story today? Well, there's Abraham, uh, there's Sarah, there's Hagar, and then, of course, there's also God who speaks through the angel of the Lord. Uh, towards the end. So Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, God, that's uh, that's how we're going to go about things today. Although actually we're going to start with Sarah uh, as our passage does. Let's um, let's bring up the first little bit of our passage. Sarah uh, Sarah is also called by a different name. She's called Sarai or Sarai uh, and, and she's going to get a new name soon as well. Uh, but the story starts now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. Sarai, Ab- Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. If you've been with us uh, if you were with us last week, if you've been with us through the series, this is a big ongoing uh, issue. Abraham and Sarah still have not had a child. This is the big ongoing thing. Back uh, Right back in chapter 12, God promised Abraham that he would have descendants. 
God's whole plan to fix the world after this whole whole book of Genesis so far is all through Abraham's descendants and still there are no kids on the scene. Back then when the promise was made back in uh, Genesis chapter 12, uh, Abraham was about 75 years old and Sarah was 65. Uh, It's now 10 years later and still there are no kids have come along. Last week you might remember uh, I compared this to my chances of playing for the Australian cricket team. Um, I'm 33 years old. My chances have always been pretty low of playing for the Australian cricket team, virtually nil. But with every year, my chances are just getting less and less and less. It's sort of going from 0.000001 and adding a few more zeros before that one. It's it's almost 100% impossible now. 85 and 75 years old, Abraham and Sarah are. Well past childbearing years. The chances of them having a child seems to have gone from zero to even more zero. Uh, Very, very unlikely. And yet we know that God has still promised them a child. Uh, Last week, last week, he reconfirmed that promise. uh, And he mentioned that it's going to be a biological child. It's not going to be an adopted child or anything like that. It's going to be their own flesh and blood. God took Abraham and showed him the stars in the sky. And he said, that's how many descendants you're going to have. After church last week, someone told me about a camping trip they're going on in the school holidays uh, up north to the Flinders Rangers. They're looking forward to seeing all the stars away from light pollution, remembering God's promise to Abraham. But I wonder, put yourself in Sarah's shoes for a minute. Sarah, I wonder if every time Sarah went out in a, on a clear night and saw the stars, I wonder if she almost felt mocked, you know. That promise has been there. God's promised children again and again and again, but you're 75 years old. And you've been waiting and waiting and waiting and no children have come along. I mean, how would Sarah be feeling? If we go back to our passage, uh, she says in uh, verse 2 that uh, she feels like God's against her. God has kept me from uh, having children. I mean, she would be feeling angry at God. She'd be feeling like a failure, don't you think? She's been, she's been probably actually feeling like a failure for 10 years, even longer than that, in fact. If you, if you were to go back into Genesis, back to actually chapter 11, verse 30, uh, which is the very first time Sarah is mentioned in the Bible, the very first time the, the Bible mentions Sarah's name, it says, Sarah was Abraham's wife and she was a barren woman. And so even before all this, even before God had promised anything, Sarah was already known as a barren woman. Of course, these days it's, not really even appropriate to use a phrase like barren woman, is it? It's, it sort of implies that women are defined purely by their ability to have children and almost as if to say, if you don't have children, you, you're a failure as a woman, which is a pretty awful way to think. And thankfully, we have uh, moved away from that way of thinking. Uh, although society has, I think, to a point, found other things, uh, not childbearing maybe anymore, but people people say to, to be a success as a woman, you uh, maybe you don't have to have kids, but there are other things. Um, you know, you maybe have to be desirable or fashionable or have an active social life or uh, express yourself in particular ways. You, uh, different subcultures, I think, probably have uh, different boxes that you probably uh, need to tick to sort of be seen as a success as a, as a woman or as a, as a person. But, but Sarah, certainly Sarah, uh, in her culture, in her ancient culture, uh, being childless would have been a great sadness, a hard thing. And then God comes along and promises children and then you're waiting for 10 years and they're still not there. I mean, it's, it's pretty brutal. It's almost like God's been stringing her along. She already knew she was uh, unlikely to have children and then God says that she is and then she still doesn't. Um, you know, one other thing, you might, you might have heard this before. I don't know if you know what Abraham's name means. Uh, Abraham's main name literally means uh, his great father. He's the great father. And so Sarah's sitting there. She's literally married to someone who's 
name is, you know, Big Daddy, and yet it's Big Daddy with, with our kids. You know, you, you meet someone and you say, what's your name? And they say, oh, my name's Big Daddy. And you say, oh, how many kids do you have? None. That's weird, isn't it? It's a weird, weird name for someone who doesn't have children. And I think, thinking about it from Sarah's point of view, she would have been feeling awful, felt like a failure, felt a great sadness. It's almost even hard to appreciate, I think, how how much this would have affected Sarah and how she would have felt. Uh, and of course, I am aware that uh, in a room this size today, there, there no doubt are plenty of us who uh, do appreciate some of what Sarah's felt because we have struggled with the pain uh, of an unmet desire to have children, uh, or maybe of having lost children. It m- might be for any number of reasons. It might be because uh, of infertility or, or medical issues or singleness or uh, any number of reasons. They can be very uh, hard things to bear, bear hard, hard struggles. Uh, and even when Bible stories like this come up at church, it can be hard, I'm sure, for some uh, to read these stories. And certainly talking about trusting God, it can be hard to trust uh, that God knows what he's doing at some of these times. Now, talking about all of this, what I want us to do is to just try and put ourselves in Sarah's shoes for a minute, okay? So uh, let's put ourselves in Sarah's shoes at the moment. I think I, I think we can understand a little bit about why Sarah is finding it hard to trust God, Right? I think we can understand why Sarah is finding it hard to trust God. And so she comes up with a plan. A plan. Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Sarah has a slave. By the way, is it a good thing to have a slave? No. Was it a good idea? Is it a good thing to... Take your slave and give a slave to your husband and try and have a child through a slave? No. Uh, no point is the Bible endorsing any of this. This is not, not God's way. But uh, two things to point out. Um, the first thing I think it is worth saying that in the time and the culture that Abraham and Sarah were in, uh, this sort of arrangement was relatively normal, seen as acceptable. Uh, so Sarah, as she looked around, she probably were, was aware of other people doing this. And so uh, to her, it didn't necessarily seem uh, so bad. Uh, the second thing, although it's an awful thing to do, we can kind of see the logic in, her, uh, in Sarah's thinking as well, can't we? Uh, we've talked about how awful she would have been feeling. Uh, we know God had promised Abraham, to, Abraham descendants. We know that it's really actually important to the salvation of the whole world that Abraham has kids. And Sarah's waited 10 years. Um, you can sort of see her go, going in her mind, you know, I know God wants Abraham to have kids. I've just come up with a different way for this to happen. She's a pragmatist, you know. She, she's sort of an ends justify the means sort of, uh, sort of person. That's her argument. But what we see as we go on, I think, is actually, I think it's actually what Sarah teaches us about trusting God. I think what this story is showing us is that God's ends, but our means, just leads to misery. God's ends, but our means, just leads to misery. Sarah's plan to give Abraham a child through her slave just creates a messy, miserable situation. And I think that's the thing about trusting God. We, we maybe trust that his promises are sure. We trust uh, in his ends. We trust in his promise that one day we'll, we'll go and be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, but we also have to trust him with the means. We have to trust him with, the, with decisions about how we run our, li- run our lives. Trusting God is not about trying to bring about his blessings by any means possible. It's about trusting that his way to live is the best way to live. 
That's the point that Sarah fails on here. She goes about things her way. I was trying to think through the week about uh, how that might apply for us here in 2021, uh, 4,000 years later. And I, I thought of situations that are maybe a little bit closer to this, uh, this 4,000 year old situation. Maybe it's something like, um, you know, God wants me to be happy. And so maybe the way I can be happy is uh, I can maybe date or marry this person uh, who God want, wouldn't want me to date or marry, this person who's maybe not a believer or uh, whatever it is. God's ends, he wants me to be happy. But our means, you know, I'm just going to go go about it my way, do things do things my way. It's, it's not it's not how we want to go about trusting God. And the other thing I thought of, um, as Christians, we want other people to hear the gospel. We want other people to uh, hear the good news about Jesus. Uh, maybe sometimes there's temptation to think, maybe if we change the message, maybe if we kind of tweak it, make it a little bit offensive. Maybe if we leave some of the more challenging parts out of the, of the gospel message, maybe more people will listen. It's, it's for God's glory, you know. It's for God, if it's for God's ends, uh, maybe we can just go about it a different way. But, but no, to trust God, to trust God is to also go about things his way. Even if we think we're doing things for the right reasons. If Sarah had uh, listened to that advice, she would have saved herself a lot of pain. But uh, how, how do you go about trusting God? How do you feel about trusting God? How do you feel about trusting God with the ends, not just uh, not just the ends, but the means as well? Trusting not just in God's promises, but trusting that God's way to live is the way to live. A good question to ask yourself, especially if you're a, a pragmatist like, like Sarah is. Now that's Sarah, I want to turn our attention now to think about Abraham. Because, of course, Abraham is just as involved in this whole section. Uh, Abraham comes into the story uh, at the end of uh, that that first sentence there, second sentence. Uh, And I must confess, I do find myself laughing at this. I probably shouldn't. It's probably not a godly thing to laugh at. But Sarah says to Abraham, go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Uh, Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. There's no, you know, no, no, honey, we need to keep trusting God. I know the waiting is hard, but we have to do the right thing. You know, there's no leading the family in godliness. Sarah comes along and says, look, Abraham, I think you should sleep with someone else, this much younger woman. And Abraham says, sure, yes, dear, anything for you. I mean, it's a hero of the faith right here, Abraham. I mean, but in reality, he just seems like a massive idiot. I think one thing this is probably meant to make us think about, it's meant to make us think back to uh, the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, uh, the sin, the eating of the forbidden fruit, the husband who's very passive and not leading his family very well. Uh, especially the next verse, verse 3, uh, Sarah, Sarah, took, uh, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband uh, to be his wife. It's very reminiscent of Eve taking the fruit and giving some to her husband, a very similar sentence structure. And actually, the mistake that Abraham makes here is very much the mistake that's been made all the way through Genesis. Doing things our way, not doing things God's way. If you were here a number of months ago when we looked at the Tower of Babel, it's the Tower of Babel thing again. I can make my own name great rather than letting God make my name great. I've got my own solution. Abraham had a choice. He had a choice. He could wait. He could trust God. Uh, or he could do things his way. And we can see the decision that he makes. Like with Sarah, he probably is thinking that the ends justify the means. You know, he's getting the descendants that God had promised. 
And maybe for Abraham, it is just uh, trusting God flies out the window as soon as there's some temptation comes along. But either way, whether it's God's ends or our means, whatever it is, it doesn't go well. Verse, uh, verse 4, Abraham sleeps with Hagar. She does conceive, so she's pregnant. The baby's on the way. Uh, but pretty quickly, there's a lot of regret. Hagar begins to despise her mistress. All of it seemed like a, maybe a good idea at the, at the time, but uh, it's certainly not seeming like a good idea now. I suspect uh, Hagar's probably thinking that if she can get Sarah out of the way, maybe her and Abraham can be a happy family. Uh, so there's no doubt lots of tension, lots of regret. Uh, in verse 5, um, uh, again, I probably shouldn't find this funny, but I do. Uh, Sarah said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Well, Sarah, sorry, but it was kind of your idea. Uh, and, but how's Abraham, how's Abraham here? Uh, uh, Abraham said, do with her whatever you think is best. I mean, jeez. Really? Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Uh, heroes of the face right here, hey? I mean, look, Abraham's a funny character, isn't he? Uh, if you've read through the whole section of Genesis, there are times when Abraham comes across as a great model of, of trust. And yet there are other parts of the story like this where you just have to say he's an idiot. You know, he trusts God for a while, but then when temptation comes along or fear or a chance to go about things a different way, he makes stupid decisions. And yet, I must admit, if you're anything like me, you can relate. Uh, there are days when you feel absolutely sure of God's promises and you feel like he's got your back and you fully trust him. Uh, and then maybe the next day you get a chance to choose to follow God or not and you decide you're better off doing things your own way. As with Sarah, Abraham finds that Failing to trust God doesn't go well. Uh, there's conflict in the family, tension. It's all very messy. And yet, you know what I think Abraham actually shows us about trusting God? Uh, yes, things are messy. Yes, things are miserable. Yes, Abraham has been an idiot, stuffed things up. He's not a model for us to follow at all. Um, but I think he is a model for us of what trusting God looks like because I think what Abraham shows us is that when we fail to trust God, when we make stupid decisions, yes, there may well be consequences. Yes, life is a lot worse and, and more messy. Uh, but God is not the kind of God who sees Abraham's silly decisions and says, well, too bad, the whole thing's off. All my promises are out the window. When we are faithless, God is still faithful. I think what Abraham shows us is that trust, even trust that wavers, even trust that doubts, even trust that comes and goes, is still, is still trust. We're not going to trust God perfectly. We do make stupid decisions and there are consequences, of course, for not going about things the right way. But in all of it, God is still faithful to his promises, even when our trust falters. Even more than that, I think God can even use our failures for good. And I think that's particularly what Hagar's part of the story is about. So let's, let's move to think about Hagar. I am... Um, I, as I normally do, I was um, uh, flicking through a few Bible commentaries this week, thinking about uh, what different people say about um, this story. Uh, and I was getting a little bit frustrated. I was getting a little bit frustrated because um, as I was looking through the different commentators and what they say, what they said, um, they always give titles to each section so they kind of tell you what they think this story is about. 
Uh, one, of the, one of the commentators, their title for this section, this story was, um, uh, this story is about Abraham's trust. And I kind of think, oh, I guess it's sort of about Abraham's trust. You know, maybe that's part of it. Another one, their title for this um, section, this story was uh, Marital Problems. I think a bit of an understatement. Um, but actually, really the reason I was getting a little bit frustrated is because the focus was always on Abraham and Sarah. And I actually think the story is mostly about Hagar. I actually think the story is mostly about Hagar. And, you know, there's a few things about Hagar. If you look closely, uh, you'll notice that Abraham and Sarah never even use Hagar's name. Did you know that? They just call her my slave, your slave. Yeah, the way they treat her is just horrible, really. There's no dignity. Abraham, Abraham's happy to sleep with her and he doesn't even use her name. So look, I want us to spend a, a good chunk of time thinking about Hagar. I think um, she is treated horribly. She is uh, a slave, as we know. She's, she's ordered to sleep with Abraham and uh, perhaps she would have been happy about the opportunity to have a child, but she certainly didn't have a choice about the whole thing. So uh, she's, she's basically raped by Abraham. And then once she gets pregnant, she despises her mistress. As I said before, I think probably what's most likely is that she kind of thinks she can maybe get Sarah out of the picture. And if she can get Sarah out of the picture, then she can have the child to herself. And, and maybe partly she's a bit of an opportunist who sees the opportunity that if she can have Abraham to herself, she'll have all the benefits that come with being married to someone like Abraham, who is uh, very wealthy. Uh, but Sarah's annoyed. Abraham says, Sarah can do whatever you want. Uh, so Sarah starts mistreating Hagar. We don't know what mistreatment Hagar went through, but it's bad enough that Hagar had to flee. Uh, you kind of get the sense that she felt like her life was in danger. I, I certainly have the picture of Hagar being beaten, abused. Uh, it's horrible treatment. And, and, and once again, never condoned by the Bible. This is not the Bible saying anything like this is acceptable. Sometimes when we read the Bible, and some, some people when they come to the Bible, they think that the Bible is a book of good examples to follow or a, a, a book that's just full of good life lessons. Well, it's not, not what the Bible is. Uh, it's a record of God's dealings with a broken world, and there's certainly plenty of brokenness in this story today. Uh, but what I, say, what I would say is actually quite hard to deal with is verse 9. Uh, let's, just, um, let's just get to verse 9 through this next part of the story. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a, near a spring in the desert, it was the spring that's beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Uh, here's verse 9. This is one of the things to be hard to deal with. Uh, the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now, I do think this is hard. Hagar has run away from abuse. Uh, do you think this is God telling Hagar to go back into an abusive situation, because that is, that is hard, isn't it? What do you think about that? Let's, let's say a couple of things. I think the first thing to say is that there's no suggestion that this is a general principle or a, or a rule that should always be followed. This is uh, not saying that people should generally, uh, shouldn't leave abusive situations. It's a specific uh, instruction for a specific situation. There's also... Nothing here, just to say again, nothing here about the way Hagar treated being okay. That's just, that's just not the case. What, what I think this does show us, uh, we have to remember that God has a very unique perspective on our lives, a, a perspective that no one else has, uh, even a perspective that we don't have. He knows more than what's going on right now. He also knows what his plans for us are. He also knows what the end game is, what, what is going to happen in the future. 
As we've been going through Genesis, we've seen that the world is broken. We've seen that God can also use brokenness for good. God can even take chaos and work with chaos and bring life out of it. Uh, We saw a great example of that right in the very first chapter of Genesis as he took the chaos of an unformed world and formed it into something beautiful. And that means sometimes God doesn't take us out of hardship, but will actually bring us through times of hardship and use times of hardship. Now with Hagar, we uh, we don't know what would have happened if she... um, She'd kept running away like she'd planned. Uh, but God actually does know. And we know she was, on a, she was on a road, single pregnant woman, by a well. So I get the picture that she's maybe starting to run out of water or close to dying of thirst or hunger. She's a runaway slave. She's a fugitive. I'm not sure her prospects were looking too good. So God gets her to go back back into that hard situation. Possibly because he doesn't want her to die alone on the road. He's got something much better in store for her. It's what we see in uh, verse 10 here, the second part of what's on the screen. God, God says, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. God does have something good in mind for her. Descendants, a legacy. God knows the way to get that good thing is to go back into something hard. She's only going to have this good future if she goes back. Sure enough, Hagar does go back. She does get through. She has the child. The child's name is Ishmael. Uh, a few, few chapters later in Genesis chapter 21, we sort of get to a, a sequel to this story. It's another story about Hagar. It's about five years later. Again, a second time, Sarah gets annoyed with Hagar, but this time... Hagar doesn't run away. What happens is Hagar is sent away. So God God tells Abraham actually to send Hagar away, and he does. And so this time in Genesis 21, Hagar's not a fugitive. She's actually free because Abraham has sent her away. And she still struggles. She, um, She almost dies of thirst again, but God still cares for her. And eventually God does come through on this promise. He makes her descendants into a great nation. It's not, by the way, it's not, uh, it's not God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. It's not, it's not the promise which comes with blessing for the broken world. It's not uh, God's plan to put the world right. But it is blessing for Hagar. God takes, he takes Abraham and Sarah's sin. He takes Hagar's, Hagar's hardship. And out of all that chaos, he brings life. He brings goodness. What do we learn from Hagar about what, it's, what it looks like to trust God. I think in Hagar, we see that we can trust God even when we are in hard situations. Even when we're in really hard situations. Even when we see other people having a hard time and we're asking whether God even knows what he's doing. He does, he does. How do you go trusting God even when it's hard? Hagar shows us that we can trust him Because even hard things God can use to bring about good. We've uh, we've spoken about Sarah, uh, Abraham, Hagar. Uh, Let's talk about the fourth character in our story, uh, God. One of the interesting things uh, about this story, actually, uh, a good question to ask, I think, is is why is this story here? Why why put this story in the Bible? At first... um, 
first you think, oh, maybe this is actually how God's promise to Abraham's going to be fulfilled. It's going to be a different way after all. But uh, as we've seen, that's not, not the case. God does bless Hagar, but he, he's not going to bring about his plans to fix the world through Hagar. Uh, they're still going to be through Abraham and Sarah. So, so why, why include this story if it doesn't progress God's plan to uh, make the world right? Well, I, I think the answer to that question is that this story is here to show us what God is like. I think this story is here to show us what God is like. It's here to show us that we can trust God, trust him with the ends, not just the means, know that he's trustworthy even when our trust falters, trust that he can even use hard situations for good. And I think particularly in God's dealings with Hagar, we see God's compassion, we see that God is a kind God, we see that God's kindness even extends beyond his own people. Hagar's Hagar's not one of God's people. I said before how Abraham never even says uh, Hagar's name. Sarah never even says Hagar's name. Uh, even the modern Bible commentators, I think, ignore Hagar a bit too much. Hagar's really not treated with dignity at all. Um, Abraham and Sarah barely even treat her like a human being, really, do they? Uh, but what I love about this passage is the very last section. Uh, God has come. He's spoken to Hagar. We'll skip to the last section. Verse 13 uh, Hagar gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. This is what Hagar says at the end. Hagar gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called uh, Bilaha Roy. It's still there between uh, Kadesh and Bered. But I love this last section. Uh, not just because it's got a well that was called beer, which makes me think of a, a well of beer, which um, uh, would be cool. But uh, what I really love is that Hagar... She's had this life of being used, abused, ignored, uh, treated like a possession. But you know what? God sees her, doesn't he? You know, God, God uses her name. God cares about her future. God is kind to her. And so Hagar says, you are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me. She had a life of not feeling like she was noticed very much. You know, God doesn't just care about his own people. He doesn't just care about Abraham's promised line. He sees Hagar. He cares for her. He values her. He treats her with love and respect, even though she wasn't part of God's covenant promises. You know, ultimately, this is why God would eventually come into the world as Jesus, isn't it? Jesus came to make salvation available to anyone who would trust in God, whether they were Abraham's physical descendants or not. Uh, there's a story in John chapter 4 that's very much a parallel of this story of Hagar. Uh, there's another woman by a well, uh, an outcast again, someone who others look down on again. Uh, in John, it's a Samaritan woman. Uh, she'd been through five different husbands. And just like God shows kindness to Hagar in Genesis, uh, in John, Jesus shows kindness to the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman trusts Jesus uh, because Jesus knows her. Jesus tells her everything about uh, her life, everything about everything that she'd ever done, uh, I think is the wording. It's a little bit like Hagar, who was excited that God sees her. Well, the Samaritan woman trusted God because she knew that Jesus knew all about her and yet still loved her. When it tr- comes to trusting God, we are trusting the God who sees. We're trusting the God who sees the hardship that we're going through, if we are going through hard things at the moment. We're trusting the God that even sees those hard things that no one else knows about yet, the hard things that you haven't been able to share with other people yet. He sees. Trusting the God that sees our sin and still loves us. 
We're trusting a God that sees those people in our society that aren't, aren't worthy of that much attention according to the world. The people who don't tick society's boxes of what it, what it means to be a successful person. Now, I, I went to a funeral a few years back. I was an older lady. Um, I knew her because um, it was back when I was going to another church, Trinity Church, Colonel Light Gardens. Uh, Trinity Church, Colonel Light Gardens meets in an RSL hall. Uh, this lady, she would come to the RSL every day, uh, have a glass of white wine and smoke a cigarette and then go on home. Uh, she lived in a housing trust home. She didn't really have any friends or family. Uh, there was only about 10 to 15 people at her funeral. Uh, she was the sort of person that society generally overlooks. And you know, I don't think she'd ever gone to church, or at least not for a really long time, but uh, she did read the Bible. Uh, she read the Bible quite a lot, actually, really uh, really just the Gospels. She read the stories about Jesus again and again and again. She loved reading about Jesus. I don't know really whether she trusted in Jesus for her salvation or not, but I do know that she knew who Jesus was and Jesus knew who she was. Jesus knew everything about her, saw every hard thing that she went through. The staff here at Trinity Church Brighton this week, we were um, doing some planning. Uh, we were talking about Christmas. Uh, it's getting closer. I think that... Uh, this Christmas, we're going to try and try and do something a little bit like what we did last year. Uh, some of you wouldn't have been here, but if you're around, we, um, with COVID and everything, we decided we weren't going to do any big events. But uh, we got together in little groups and uh, got together and we made lots of little gifts and gave them out to people all over our community. Uh, I know people gave little gifts to people like, like people at some of the aged care facilities. People that they knew were isolated and wouldn't be getting many uh, Christmas gifts. It, it's a pretty special thing for someone who doesn't get a lot of support, who doesn't feel like many people notice them. It's a pretty special thing to get even just a token, a token that says we, we see you, a token that says we know that they're there, that we treat them with dignity, even though it's just a little Christmas gift. I think one of the questions that this story asks of us is, do we see? Do we look for those people who others overlook? Do we look for ways to show compassion to those who need it? I think there are probably plenty of people out there, might be the ones that we come across every week, but don't think too much about. I think there are plenty of people out there who would love to know that the God of the universe sees them. And I reckon there are plenty of people out there who would be amazed to know that the God of the universe died for them. We might leave it there. How do you go at trusting God? Sarah, can you trust God with the ends as well as the means? Uh, Abraham, we can trust God even when our trust falters. Hagar, we can trust God because even hard things he can use for good. And looking at God himself, he's the God who sees. He's a God of compassion. He cares for us. And so we can trust in him. Let's pray. Our dear Father God, you are the God who sees. We thank you that you see people like Hagar. You see people who are struggling, mistreated. You're the God of compassion. Father, we see your compassion, and as we see it, help us to trust in you. Help us to trust in you even when we're going through hard things. Help us to trust that you can even use hard things for good. Uh, Help us to know that you are trustworthy even when our trust is faltering. Help us to trust you enough to do things your way. Uh, Help us to trust you in a way that makes a difference. Trust you that uh, when we have decisions to make, we make them for you and we live for you. Lastly, we thank you for Jesus who came to seek and save the lost. 
Help us to trust in him. Amen.